a Podcast One production. I'm automotive commentator and journalist Greg Rust, and this is Rusty's Garage. I'm in New Zealand for this ep, in the centre of the North Island, and I can't tell you how good it is to be recording an ep face-to-face. I love the whole period of innovation during COVID-19, and many of those new methods we'll use for future guests wherever they are in the world. My guest today, though, is a former Formula One driver and sports car racer, Brendan Hartley. We've been able to tee this up just before he jets back to Europe for work with the Toyota team's World Endurance Championship program and with another outfit in the all-electric Formula E program. I'll get his thoughts on that later for you. You may remember Brendan from his time with Scuderia Toro Rosso in Formula One from late 2017 to 2018. How he came to get that seat is quite a story. Purists, though, will know he's a two-time world champion in sports cars with Porsche and a winner of one of the greatest races on the calendar, the Le Mans 24-hour. As you'll hear, he went close to a plum gig in America as well, and he learned at times of adversity to get the whiteboard out and remap his career. He's such a good bloke that... Even though he lost some critical Red Bull backing as a junior in 2010, they still took his call and he was able to kind of return to the fold against the odds. We start with some background on early life, which was a long way from the circuits in Europe that would become something of a backyard by his mid-teens. Yeah, so Palmy North, Central North Island. Um, I like growing up there. Uh, it gets, gets a bit of flack. I think there was a very famous quote by John Cleese who... I think, it's, I think he said it was one of the most depressing places on earth or something silly like that. But I actually, I love growing up there and I'm a big advocate of the region and um, friends and family are, are still very much there and I always visit once a year over Christmas. And yeah, earliest memories there were out at Manfield, which was just down the road and, and at the go-kart track. And I, I was, yeah, very much grew up watching my, my old man and then also my brother raced before me and, and I had the bug as, for as long as I can remember. We'll talk more about both of them in a second, but, but you've just illustrated the fact that you're from a proper motor racing family, so you grew up around it. Your dad raced successfully in all kinds of things from speedway to circuit racing. I would imagine they're the earliest memories. What springs to mind for you? What was kind of the first time you can recall him racing and where were you? Um, I remember plenty of times either being at the Manawatu Speedway, so he, he used to race a um, saloon car on dirt, um, but also being out at Manfield. I, I don't know what my earliest memory would be, but I remember being a little fella just running around the pits and paddock. I remember watching him race Formula Holden against the likes of Murphy. I actually remember being when Murphy went over the, the fence yeah. uh, at, at the sweeper. I, I was there, mate, running to see if he was all right. Um, It'll make him feel very old if I, if, if I tell him how old I was. But, um, how old were you? Come on. <laughs> I must have been less than five, but uh, someone can do the maths on, on what year that was. Yes. Um, but yeah, no, I can't, nothing exactly springs to mind, but like I say, as a young fellow, my, my life really consisted of school and being at a racetrack, either watching my old man in the very early days or then go-karting from the age of, of six. It started then and my life really revolved around, well, our whole family's life revolved around, around motorsport. Am I right in saying um, he's a very good engine builder and, and known around the country and beyond for that? Am I right in saying he's a two-time New Zealand champion in those saloon cars you were talking about before? 
That might be right. Yeah, yeah he, he's uh, he's actually on his way here. He'll be here in a couple of hours, so he'll be able to tell you. But um, I, th- I think that sounds about right. I think he was um, mini champ a couple of times as well, and he's a mini champ. And um, I always used to give Mark Weber a lot of stick because um, he actually raced against Mark. I think it was in the very first Melbourne Grand Prix in Formula Holden because yep. I was teammates with Mark. You see, and I was like, "Yeah, you race against my old man." But unfortunately, Mark won the race, so I, I could only give him I could only give him so much shit about it. You know, it just it kind of had ended there, but. Um, yeah, he, he he did race all sorts over the years and was a um, bit of a grafter, you know, like f- hearing the stories from him, you know, he never had a budget. He'd buy a car that was crashed the year before and, and you know, do it up and prepare it himself and get it ready for the next year when he, he raced from Atlantics, you know, which was, a, which was a big series back in the day and, you know, always on a bit of a budget, but a um, bit of Kiwi ingenuity and, and uh, I, th- I think, you know, like many of us Kiwis, not all of us had the opportunities like I've had to go overseas, but... Um, I think he was, yeah, definitely pretty handy. Yeah. One of those cars that he ended up repairing, I, I think, was a Formula Atlantic campaign by Keke Rosberg. Is that correct? And he spent quite a bit of time repairing that car, didn't he? Um, it's funny because I remember him telling me that story many times over the years. And I actually, I told, I told a reporter um, that story a couple of months ago yeah. about how he bought one of KK's cars one year that, that had been crashed. And then, then I had Dad quickly ringing me and telling me it was actually someone else's car. So, oh, I, don't, oh. so I, don't, I, don't, I don't know if it's Dad been, okay. been twisting the story for all those years and like bigging it up and, and saying it was KK's but it was someone else's. But you, you, know, you, you never let the truth get in the, in the way of a good story. But in any case, there you know he um he was always on a tight budget but yeah hearing the stories from him motorsport was very different back then and you know when you see some of the pictures of you know the picture of him in the minis back in the day with a full field full crowd down at manfield and um i think yeah there, there were some probably pretty golden years when he was racing and it's uh, kind of envious actually of, of how it looked back in you know New Zealand motorsport back, back then it was looked pretty awesome true or false your middle name is morris after the morris minor yeah, Morris, minor or mini? I, I would say probably more mini. Um, but again, you'd have to ask ask Dad. Um, but yeah, no, so I've in fact got a Morris mini in the garage. Um, I, I grew up loving minis, and I think it was partly because I had a, a VHS um, tape of Dad winning a mini race, and I used to watch it over and over when I was, when I was really young. And I always had a little fascination with minis. And it's kind of in the family. My, my brother actually went to um, Bonneville, must have been three or four years ago, probably more actually now, um, and broke the land speed record in a, in, a, in a mini. So dad and my brother built the engine. It was prepared by, um, you know, Gary Orton and his team. And they, they went over to Bonneville and, and I think they did 170 odd mile an hour in a thousand cc mini. So original thousand cc. So yeah, mini's definitely in the blood and I've always loved them. So we've actually got one in the garage, 1967 um, Cooper S. Uh, Sarah and I drive it down to the shops couple of times a week and yeah love it mate I get such a thrill by driving some of the old stuff and just it's got character and it's, it's fun yeah tell us a little bit more about that red in color beautifully restored where did you kind of track it down you don't have to do too much to it do you nah so um I didn't restore it myself but we we, we found it on trade me and it was a, a guy um down in Capity we, we we touched base with him we heard the full story he'd owned it for 30 years it was yeah he'd fully restored it it was you know the love you know his little labor of love and um yeah, he was moving on, and I think he was pretty happy. It was going, um, you know, going to an owner that that yep. that uh, that was going to take care of it, and yeah, it's our little little pride and joy here in, in Taupo. The best part is that you're actually driving it still, which I think is cool. It's not just sort of gathering dust in the in the garage. I want to come back to your brother just for one second, Nelson, who, as you rightly point out about that um, about that land speed record, his endeavours, his feats did filter back 
to some of the race teams abroad and they kind of gave you stick about being the second fastest Hartley or something. Is that true in some of the race teams? Oh, yeah, 100% I've heard that. No, actually, when I was at Le Mans a few years, um, there is actually a good story. So my second Le Mans in 2012, my brother came over um, to, to support, watch the race. He, he was actually doing the... Um, he was changing the, doing the driver changes during the pit stop. So he got part of the team. And yeah, and he, the funny thing was I missed my flight um, to get um, back to Le Mans for the, um, the scrutineering. So I don't know, anyone who has, is familiar with um, Le Mans, uh, one week before you have a scrutineering day, there's a huge crowd. It's where all the, the photos taken for the whole week. But I was racing for an Irish team at the time. And um, the team owner thought it would be a good laugh just to throw Nelson in the race suit. So if you actually go through the history books for Le Mans 2013, all the official photos, there's actually Nelson standing there in my, in my race suit. But the, the funny thing, it was incredibly awkward for him because after everyone thought it was me and he started signing autographs, he wasn't sure whether to sign autographs or not. And <laughs> he, he reckons people were kind of yelling and screaming at him because he, he wasn't signing autographs. So there's probably a whole lot of people that think I'm an arsehole now because he's but yeah it was yeah a funny story that if you ever look up the, the images from the 2013 Le Mans he's actually there standing in my race suit so I love it. Yeah. he has given me a little bit of an insight into you for this chat which is terrific and the podcast over time oh God. Uh, no no it's good it's okay <laughs> uh, we've got a couple of good yarns don't believe um, everything you said don't, don't believe okay okay um, the podcast at times ends up being uh Athletes whose chosen path or, or tool just happens to be motor racing, and they they you know they still have an attachment or a love of cars. And there are others that are. I spoke to Daria Franchitti recently, who's a, you know a, just a diehard car guy. I sense in you love of car, but athlete, competitive spirit. You know, real competitive spirit. And he says, Nelson says, this started to come out at a very young age, and he recalls you guys going to your cousins for a Sunday roast lunch and he reckons really okay okay he he says you were playing some sort of Sega racing game back in the day oh I don't every- believe this story I don't believe it by the way but go on no. he's told this story lots of times and I still don't believe him but that's fine yeah. you fill in the blanks for everyone what, <laughs> no, no, what, you, what, no you go on no you go on he, he claims that um, you're all lining up to have, have a go and uh, you were kind of two or three away in the queue from having your turn. <laughs> now you complete it. You, whether it's factual or not, what do you reckon he says happened? He thinks I was so committed to getting my turn and, and obviously going for the fastest lap or biggest score or whatever it was that I, I ended up um, just just peeing my pants just just to not lose my spot. That's what he claims. I, I mean, I would claim that's quite a big dedication and I'm, yes. I'm sure, I'm sure uh, athletes have, have done worse to, to succeed, but... Um, yeah, I'm not convinced that's a true story, but he, he does claim that that happens. So. He paid you a great compliment in, in the sense that he said, you know, you're a really um, smart motor racer. Um, a lot of that has come through experience over time, but the way you've applied yourself as well. But he could tell even from a young age the way you would take things in. Four-year age gap between you guys. And even when you first started, you were, you were barely six, I think, when you first started go-karting. But even then, he felt that you would be wandering around looking at his cart, which I would imagine was probably in a different class, and looking at things that were different and and reasons why his may have been faster perhaps than yours. Yeah, I think I realised pretty early on that I was a very competitive person, as as you said. And I I think that is part of being any sports person. If if you don't have that competitive drive, um, I mean, you you need some sort of competitive drive. But I, I, I do... 
always recollect my very first go-kart race. So I, I'd just turned six. Um, I'd been out to the go-kart track for my very first test day. Um, and I think that is the one and the one and only time myself and my and my brother have actually raced in, in the same race together. So wow. he's so he's ten years old. So he's just on the edge of moving up from cadet to to junior restricted, which is in go karts. And here I am at six years old, having my very first race. So naturally, he's going to kick my butt. He's going to you know lap me more or less. But we've 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 done the test day, and I was pretty upset how far off the pace I was. And um, when I, I'll never forget getting back to the. I'm uh, getting back to the house. The two carts were sitting there, and I was inspecting and trying to figure out what was different about his car. And I'd I'd already nailed that, that he had a different gearing on. I mean, he's gone a lot quicker. He needed needed a much smaller gear on there. Um, different NASA panels and wheels and tires. And I, I I started already giving out then and making you know giving out to my old man that I wanted better race gear. So um, I'm not sure if that's a good quality or not, but it, it was pretty clear from the word go that I, that I, I had a, a drive to want to win, which I guess is it's a big part of any sport. You know, I mean. Um, I think what you learn with experience is actually how to take take the losers as well, you know, because you can't you can't always win. And and in, uh, I think that's something that I've learned, particularly in the last ten years racing in Europe and having a lot of ups and downs. Is actually you have to take the the, the good with the bad and and actually finding a way to turn those difficult times. You know, as a young fella, it's very hard to understand when when things aren't going well or you're making a mistake. How that can ever become a positive? But I think with experience, I I have been able to learn that. You know, a mistake or an issue or whatever it can be, if if you can look at it like, okay, I can learn from that. That's mega that I've had that experience. How do I how do I improve that for next time? If you if you can harness that those negative situations and actually turn it into positive, that that's been the big thing for me to to improve myself going forward. Because I, I think as a young fellow, I was probably too competitive, and I, I'm sure I upset all sorts of people. And and um, yeah, you, you know, you know, not, not normal normal being young young competitive. Egotistical driver, but I think I've I've moved on a little bit from there and, and understand a little bit more how to <laughs> get the most out of things. But yeah, that's a great life takeout, irrespective of motor racing. I, I reckon. Um, yeah, not, not, and not even with like not even with just driving mistakes. I, I've noticed, I've realised recently. You know, if you have whatever the hard situation in the career is, you can always put a positive spin on it. And and if you can do that and 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 get that positive out of that, that's that's how you can actually move forward. You know, I think a lot of people dwell on the negatives and and, and um, dwell on, yeah, you know, if it's a mistake, if it's losing your drive, whatever it is, I think that always can be looked at in a positive way in some, yeah, it, even if it's a small thing, there's always a positive to take out of it, in my opinion. We'll come back over your career in a second, but you, where you going with this discussion leads me directly to your your time in Formula One and, and in some respects on, on a... A record sheet. It's it's brief, you know. Whatever it was, twenty five odd races, uh, four points. But I, I understand from another chat that you did recently that you have kind of compartmentalised it like that, haven't you? You've looked back and found the positives. You know that that by and large you put the best that you could on the table at the time. Lots of things unfolded, and there's plenty of drivers that can tell that sort of story, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I, I look back at the time in Formula One in a very positive light. Um, you know, I, th- I think there's a lot of drivers, New Zealand drivers, Australian drivers, you know, wherever you're from, there's plenty of drivers out there that, that could have made it to Formula One and didn't um, for whatever reason. And I, I felt very lucky and, and um, yeah, I was in a pretty unique position to actually get to Formula One. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that in itself is, is something positive to look back on. Um, of course, I would have have uh, liked to have continued there for longer mm-hmm. um, but just to have that opportunity for one year was was huge and I don't have any regrets I mean okay yeah the, 
at the start of the season, maybe one or two things going differently, one or two things falling my way, maybe not making a mistake when, you know, in, in a crucial moment, things could have turned out completely different. Um, but that's, you know, that's motorsport. And I, I think um, I definitely grew through the year and I finished a lot stronger than I started. Um, but it's not, you know, there's a lot more to Formula One. I don't want to go into all the politics. and the, But yeah, I, I don't look back in a negative way and I, I don't, yeah, I, I'm, I feel incredibly lucky that I got there to start with and, and uh, I'm very proud of, of the story of how I got there and, you know, I lost my drive with Red Bull 10 years before and, it happened, and here I was 10 years later um, in, in Formula One um, with, with, with Red Bull. Um, and, and that journey to get there, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm proud of that story and there were plenty of ups and downs on the way and I'm, uh, I've still got a successful career in motorsport, yeah. yeah. Most definitely you do. You're to be credited for that because you, you effectively picked up the phone called Helmut Marco again and, and started you know, chatting with him and, and reinforced the fact that you were a more, in your eyes, and, and certainly in, on, you know, uh, on, on paper, a more complete driver in, what, in terms of what you're offering when that Toro Rosso opportunity presented. Yeah, I mean, I, was, <laughs> I definitely got the timing right, um, but at the same time, I, I, t- I saw an opportunity and, and I took it. Um, yeah, I think a lot of the times in, in motorsport, timing is key and, and I'd actually just found out that Porsche would be pulling out of LMP1, which I'd been in for four years, which was a big blow. And um, again, I took that as, as an opportunity. Okay, so what's next? What opportunities are out there? And, and um, IndyCar was a potential, wasn't it? Um, yeah, another story. It's a long one, but I was pretty close to heading to the US as well. And um, yeah, even had a contract to be in the US. But yeah, the, the whole Formula One situation happened very quickly, but without making that phone call to Helmut Marco and just putting myself out there, it wouldn't have happened. And um, I think that that even goes back to when, when I got the drive at Porsche. I think I was I was a bit of a wild card, and, and no one was really expecting me to get that drive. You know, they'd had a hundred drivers call them up. A lot of a lot of people with endurance experience. I'd just come onto the endurance scene, but I I did pick up the phone and make that phone call to to Porsche and. Um, I think that a lot of people don't sometimes take those opportunities or, or pick up the phone or you know expect those opportunities to come with to them without actually making an effort. So, yeah, I I, I think definitely timing was was key, but yeah, at least I did pick up the phone and ask the question. <laughs> so does that mean then, you know, hypothetically, that IndyCar is still on the on the box to be tick list for you? I mean, you're only thirty now. Um, yeah, it's not something I'm actively pursuing right now. So I've, I'm I'm really happy to be with. Toyota and, and the WEC so I'm, I'm back to Le Mans I should have been there this weekend I'm actually about to do the 24 um, hour virtual Le Mans um, I'm sure you're probably going to ask me about some virtual stuff later um, but hopefully the Le Mans 24 hour will take place at the end of the year so I'm, I'm super happy to be back in endurance racing and it's something I, I didn't dream up I dream of racing as a kid but it's something I fell in love with when I went to Le Mans for the first time um, so I feel very happy to be back where I am and in that program um, I think the future looks bright there but you know a lot of people ask me about what the future holds but you just never know and that, that you know the whole, the whole Formula 1 story is, is proof of that you know if you asked me two or three years before and asked do I have a realistic chance of being in Formula 1 I would have said no not really mm. um, but there I was and, and, and I was there two years later so you know you can never say never to any opportunity um, but what I would say is right now I'm very happy with with, uh, with what I'm doing and I think the recovery after losing my drive in Formula 1 I couldn't be in a better place I'm so happy to be back in, at the top level of endurance racing I want to rewind the clock a little bit you had a great opportunity present with 
uh, Red Bull to go to Europe as a as a young man. You were, I think, fifteen. It's an incredibly tough system in in many ways, but if you can get on board, it's it's immensely beneficial in that early part of your career. As a fifteen year old kid heading <laughs> over, tell me how that that felt, where you went for that assessment, that test, and how that all played out. So, yeah, fifteen years old. Um, Again, similar stories to what I said before about Paul getting to Formula One. Together with uh, Kenny Smith, who was who was helping me and mentoring me back then, we sent an email to Helmut Marco. We 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 got his contact uh, from from a guy named Jeremy Shaw, who's yeah, an American, and he yeah. brought, was bringing American well, drivers over. Yeah, yeah, great guy, and and he brought American drivers over to New Zealand and Formula Ford, um, who I raced against, and he saw a bit of talent in me. I was doing a good job, and he was happy happy enough to pass on Helmut Marco's contact. Um, so we sent an email to Helmut Marco, and you're going to laugh, but I don't remember the exact number, but I think we were looking for 10000 or $15,000 worth of sponsorship. I mean, we just didn't have any money. We, were, we saw a few um, V8 supercar drivers popping up with Red Bull helmets. We said, okay, look, you know, we, we were desperate for a bit of funding. You know, we were doing Formula Ford with myself, my brother, and, and my father. I, I was, I should, we should talk about my brother later because he's, he's been a, yeah, with, without him, I definitely wouldn't have got to where I was today as well with uh, the help that he gave in, in those early days. But um, anyway, we, we were, you know, we were just looking for money. Um, and uh, sorry, this was actually in, in uh, a year later, I was racing Toyota Racing Series. Mm-hmm. So we sent this email saying, take a look, you know, I'm racing in, in New Zealand. Um, again, timing was great because Toyota Racing Series launched. It, it kind of went international. People were watching it all around the world. International drivers were, were coming over to race in New Zealand. It had cachet, didn't it? it yes. Yeah. Um, I won the very first Toyota Racing Series race. Um, and yeah, about two or three months after we sent that original email, just looking for a bit of Red Bull sponsorship, um, he, we, we got sent back a what felt like a 100-page contract. And as a 15-year-old, as a I, I didn't... You know, it was incredibly overwhelming to try and understand what that meant, and, and you know, going through all the clauses, and that was definitely the first time I'd ever seen a contract or tried to understand one. But basically, what the contract was was uh, um, an opportunity to fly to Europe and do a young driver test. Mm-hmm. If I did a good job, then that contract would be countersigned by them, and I was going to be part of the Red Bull development program. So it was actually at the same time as the end of year exams. We couldn't get compassionate consideration, so I actually didn't complete my my, my end of year exams. <laughs> actually, the, the, the school in general was very um, supportive, so I, I shouldn't. Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not not trying to have a go at them. They, they were they were very supportive of all my racing exploits. You know, all the all the weekends away and and, and Fridays away. Um, but yeah, so I, I didn't complete the end of year exams. Um, flew to Estoril. There was about 20 drivers and I was uh, one of the four selected and, and that was it. We were signed with Red Bull and I left home, friends, school, family um, at the next, the following year, so I was then 16. Um, but looking back on it, the, the thing that sometimes surprises me is that there was no question at that time. It was, you know, there was no discussion with my parents. It was, it was such a big opportunity. It was such a an opportunity that we, we would, you know, I don't come from a family with a lot of money, you know, go-karting, it was myself and my dad after school, obviously dad building us a great engine, but you know, we were, it was everything done ourselves. We didn't have a lot of budget. Going to Europe was never on the cards. It, that, that was never really a realistic option. Um, so that when this opportunity presented itself, there was, you know, from my mum, there was no discussion about me leaving and, and looking now and chatting to a 15 or 16 year old, I say, well, like I was, I was that young when I, I hopped on a plane and, and uh, left to go to the other side of the world. And although I was 
pretty handy with numbers at school. I was one of the top at my school in maths. I was terrible at language and probably worse at geography. So half these countries I was now going and driving and I could barely locate on the map, you know, I never heard of them before. So it was uh, yeah, pretty green and it was a pretty steep learning experience. But um, yeah, long time ago. That weird feeling when you are stopped at the lights and the turning lane next to you starts moving and you feel like you are going backwards. So you push the braking harder. You know what I'm talking about. Let's expand on Nelson for a moment, your, your brother. He's gone on to do some great things as an engineer, very good racer you know, uh, himself. I think he's back doing some karting at the moment and, yeah. and actually um, really enjoying it. But I think he's reflected to someone recently that, that a lot of the learnings that he did in his own career was something that you were able to benefit from four years as junior and that, that helped you a lot in many different ways, didn't it? Yeah, 100%. I don't know if he's told you that, but I would have told you the same anyway. <laughs> I don't, he, 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 yeah, he, he doesn't mind picking himself up, but I, 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 honestly, I have... He did pump your tyres. He did say you were... <laughs> no, on, on, I, I was going to say that anyway. And, and um, I, again, I, I felt very lucky throughout my whole career because um, he, you know, he, he was four years ahead of me, mm-hmm. so... My, him, himself and my, my dad would spend four years, you know, if it was developing, you know, go-karting, perfecting everything, then I would kind of come along and, and have the finished product, mm-hmm. um, which probably goes in, in hand wide. You know, he's ended up as an incredible engineer. Yes. Um, I rate him so highly and, and, and it, it pains me that, you know, I, I think he's going to have a big break very shortly because I, I know what he's capable of as an engineer. I mean, what he's pumping out in terms of engines and designing products, got a five axis CNC machine. He's print, 3D printing things that, and he's a one man show in, in terms of the design pro- process. And he, yeah, I have incredible respect for what he's able to do and, and he's got a lot of exciting projects coming up. But I think that kind of goes hand in hand. He was always the engineer and developing this finished product, finished products like Formula Ford. He did three or four years of it. And then here I came along as a, as a pesky 13 year old hopped in the finished product you know I think I won my first race out at Manfield and but I didn't have to go through that whole development process so yeah I, I was um fortunate to kind of follow in his his footsteps I was definitely lucky to get the hand-me-downs you know you normally don't want the hand-me-downs but in this case it was definitely a good thing to get the hand-me-downs from from my big brother who had, had spent all those time all that time developing it yeah when you got to uh Osterslaven, you, you couldn't drive a car you weren't technically old enough in Europe to do that but you were back home here in New Zealand. And you, uh, am I right in saying you had a little Honda Civic? Was that your first car? What was your first My car? first car was a Honda Civic, yeah. So I, I must have had that, um, I think I must have had my license at 15 in New Zealand, is yeah, that right? I think, I think yeah, 15, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know if it's changed now. So yeah, I had a Honda Civic. And then like, as you say, moving to Europe, I was too young to drive. I think I could have had a scooter, but I, I didn't. Um, so yeah, live, moving to Oschersleben, which if anyone doesn't know, that's in East Germany. There's a there's a there's a racetrack there. It's the middle of nowhere. It's not really somewhere you you would go um, to live other than if there's there's a reason to be there. So that was the race team was you know, two two minutes down the road. You literally uh, lived at the correct me if I'm wrong at the workshop, did you more or less? Um, yeah, not far off to yeah, be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, with a couple of other drivers, so I was with an Australian driver actually, Nathan Antunis, yeah. um, and an American driver, John Edwards. Uh, all Red Bull drivers, yeah, BMW driver. Um, so we we had a good fun together. We used to hop on the train and go to the closest town, Magdeburg. We'd hop on our we had our push bikes. We're no one spoke a word of English in the whole in the whole town. Um, 
but yeah, it was a big learning experience in that first year thinking, you know, I, was, I traveled all around Europe and discovered all these countries. As I said, I couldn't, couldn't even locate on the map before and, and started experiencing all these different cultures and how different teams were working. And um, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of life lessons in a very short period of time and, and a lot of things that I would have never learned at school, as, as you could imagine, traveling around Europe with a race team um, and, and going to all these yeah, different countries and cities yeah and to red bull training camps and seeing people like sebastian vettel and competing in the junior formula where you'd have success um and importantly in you know in a in a big field too brendan like 40 odd cars i think wasn't it yeah so the the first year um i wouldn't say it was very successful i think i think it was definitely a steep learning year also just being out of my comfort zone that that first year in europe i had a lot of homesickness i miss new zealand a lot and I think for, for anyone who hasn't travelled, um, they probably won't quite appreciate this, but anyone anyone who has lived abroad for a short amount of time, um, I think you, you start to really become very patriotic and, and appreciate New Zealand a lot more than what you did before. You know, growing up in New Zealand, it's all normal, it's all it's all great, but you know, you don't you don't think anything you don't think too much of it. But when you go abroad, you start to miss those little things and, and realize what, what a great country we, we, we do live in. And I'm not complaining about, you know, where I was living, but just very different, you know. So that, that first year was tough for me, you know, being away from, from friends and family and just a lot of new things, not, not just the driving of the cars, but, you know, just the different cultures and how the teams worked and working in a, you know, being in a part of a company with like, like Red Bull or being a bit more in the media eye, doing interviews, you know, a bit, but just, there was just so much learning in that first year. And I, I wouldn't say it was the best start, um, but the second year was a big turning point and I won the, um, the European Championship in Formula Renault. And as you say, that was uh, 40 or 50 cars. Um, so that, yeah, that, that, was, that was really the big, um, yeah, winning a European Championship is, is is what every driver's looking for, and that, that was um, the biggest junior formula at the time. You, as you would go, um, uh, clearly uh, Red Bull give you the opportunity, and uh, that came in in enormous is not quite the right word, but it, it came in a very busy sense. You had a, a patch of your career there in whatever it was, um, you know, as we we get closer toward twenty ten, where you were doing lots, and I think you felt like maybe you bit off more than you can chew at that stage just reflect on that for me and and what you mean by that yeah definitely got burnt out um so how it worked in the red bull program you know you you had no choice over what what you were going to be racing so at the start of the year you get a call from helmet marco he'd he'd tell you okay call this number you're racing with X, this, X, this championship and X team, and and there w- there was no real discussion. You know that they were they were making all the calls for your career, mm-hmm. even to the point of of where you'd be living. Um, at least that that was the case for me. Um, and going into um, so two thousand two thousand seven, um, I won the European um, Formula Formula Renault Championship. Um, and the next year, I went to uh, Formula Three and, and British Formula Three, mm-hmm. which went pretty well. Um, I had the most race wins, but also made some stupid mistakes, which which meant I didn't win the championship. I was, I was P3 behind Jaime Alguersuari. Mm-hmm. Um, but going into the next season, I became the Formula One reserve driver. Mm-hmm. So th- this was the year where I really got burnt out. So I got into a situation. I was a Formula One reserve driver. I raced the Formula Three European Series. Mm-hmm. Um, and at very last minute notice, I, I also raced in the World Series by Renault oh. Championship. 
uh, which I'd done almost no testing for. So not only was I competing in two championships, I was also the reserve driver for Formula One and going to all the Formula One races um, on top of simulator testing back at the factory. And yeah, I, I got burnt out, honestly. I, I, I went from racetrack to racetrack. Um, I had a few bad results, which, you know, you start to lose a bit of confidence. You're jumping from between different cars. I felt like a bit of a, um, a spare part at being a reserve driver. It wasn't something that I particularly enjoyed, you know, going to the racetrack, listening on in the meetings, but not really having a role. You know, you, you didn't really have an input. You were just there listening. Um, it sounds like I'm moaning, but yeah, the, the truth is I got burnt out and, I, and I, I wasn't really, it was it was a bit of a dark time in my career. I didn't, I didn't enjoy it. Um, I lost a bit of the love for, for motorsport in a way. And I think the results reflected that. Um, and I think as a young, you know, 17, 18 year old, um, I, you know, I, I say I wasn't prepared for that, but you know, you look at the likes of Max Verstappen and he, he's gone there at that age and he was prepared for that, but um, I wasn't. Um, so yeah, that I, th- I think I just got a bit burnt out, mate. And um, you know, a year and a half later, I lost my drive with with Red Bull. And I think for just reasons, the results weren't there. I mean, I'm I'm not going to sit there and say, yeah, they they asked me to do too much or whatever it was, and that that's that's how it was. And but that that was quite a turning point for me as well because all of a sudden I was put in a situation where um, I no longer was under the Red Bull umbrella where they were deciding, okay, you, you need to be there at this day. You need to be with this team. I was all of a sudden a bit more in control of my own destiny. I've always had great support back in New Zealand mm. from the likes of Peter Johnston, you know, Barry Tomlinson have always been advisors, you know, obviously the Gill Traps who have, have helped, you know, almost every single New Zealand driver I can think of. So I've always had great support, but under that Red Bull umbrella, they were very much in control of, of every move in my career. So all of a sudden I was in this situation and, and it, it, where... I was all of a sudden in control again. And, and actually, it, it was actually a big relief for me, which sounds weird, like losing that, losing that drive. I remember it was at the um, 2010 Silver Sun Grand Prix, I had a meeting with Helmut Marco who told me um, that, yeah, I'd, I'd no longer be in the Red Bull program. And it was actually a big release. And I remember getting home that night and I was like, okay, well, what now? You know, like it, I was very much on the edge of coming home to New Zealand. It was, that wasn't in my head at the moment. It was like, no, I'm not going home but obviously I didn't didn't have money to, to yeah. keep supporting myself to be to be in Europe but um, I still had this this sense of relief and that I I was now in control so um, chatting to a lot of my advisors in New Zealand um, you know one of the advice from from Peter Johnson was like okay get a whiteboard and just start marking up marking up all the contacts that you've made over the last um, four or five years in Europe and, and that's what I did and I started picking up the phone for the first time in my career that was never something I had to do before um, and just embraced it, you know. I, I grafted. I, I got an odd drive here and there. Um, I picked up a, a role at the Mercedes Formula One team, so I became one of their their test drivers, which which I continued for three or four years. So that became a big part of my my um, actually my income. You know that 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 was uh, that's what supported me to live. And, and my wife Sarah worked at a restaurant, so you know we were we were scraping to get by. We didn't have any money, and um, you know I, I was was grafting to just find those drives here and there, but. It, it, it's hard to explain, but just being a bit more in control of my own career, it, it did it did change my outlook, and um, I guess I realised very quickly that I 100% wanted um, to find a way to to, to restore my career, um, and I think the big turning point for me was was going to endurance racing as well. So um, a year and a half later, um, I turned up to the the official test um, for the LMP2. Mm-hmm. 
endurance racing at, at Paul Ricard. I, I arrived with my helmet, um, some cash, so to speak. Well, a bank, a bank account that I knew I had a, a couple of thousand euros in. I walked up and down. But, but unannounced. You kind of like just you, you rocked up and, and sort of started knocking on garage doors. What did you do? Effectively, yeah. So I was in touch with one team who would potentially put me in a, in, a, in a car for a test. So although I had a bit of a reputation in single seaters, endurance is a whole new world. You know, you, it's, it's a different, so yeah, almost a different sport in, in a way. You know, that you need to prove yourself again in endurance. Um, so I, I basically went up and down the pit lane, introduced myself to every single team owner. Um, but the one team that I had been in contact with before, um, I, I paid a small amount of money to do 30 laps in the car with one set of tires, um, did a mega job. Um, and that turned into a race drive with another team that I met on the day, it was, it was a guy named Greg Murphy, believe it or not, an Irishman. Um, he met me on that day, saw what I did, and, and uh, about a month later, I did my very first endurance race. And two months later, my two or three months later, my very first Le Mans 24 hour. That was a big turning point for me. I, f- I fell in love with endurance racing, the team element, um, working with teammates for, for a common goal, you know, sharing those, all, that, all that information, that camaraderie, the endurance side of it too. I just, yeah, I, I found the more, um, the most exhilarating thing I'd done. You know, standing on that pit lane, I had goosebumps. You know, the whole team had worked a whole year for this one 24-hour race and I just loved it, mate. I'm not really putting it into words very well, but um, that, that was a big turning point for me, getting to endurance racing, um, which which then a few years later t- turned into a, to a factory drive in, in, uh, in Porsche. But between that, I also ended up racing in America. You know, I met a contact from, from you know, so I was then um, at that time, I was yeah, racing LMP2 in, in Europe via just turning up for this test, which then also turned into a... Um, a driving Grand Am in America, which you know started making some contacts in America, and, and I've, I've done the Daytona 24 many times, and um, yeah, so I really turned my career around and, and took a different direction. But the crazy thing was, you know, eight, seven, eight years later, I actually ended up back in Formula One, and um, I grew so much in that time of actually being in control of my own destiny and and, and having to make those calls, and Sarah becoming a bit. Bit more part of the team, you know. Sarah moved over to, to live with me in Europe. You know, we've been, been together a long time. Um, but you know, during that time, we became more of a team because we we were all of a sudden working together. You know, she's now in charge of logistics, and she she deals with with you know sponsors or the team on different different elements. So you know, we the whole yeah, my whole life changed in, in that moment, and and um, in some ways for the better. And I'm not saying look, I'm happy Red Bull dropped me, but in some ways I probably needed that. I needed a bit of a, a bit of a shift and, and I was just in a bit of a rut, yeah. I, know, I, I probably haven't explained it very well, no, mate. I, think, I, I, I disagree. I think you have because you've given us a sense of, of finding the hunger again, which I, which I like. The fact that you didn't lose the love of motor racing, if, if anything, it started a new love affair in a different sense. You, you clearly hadn't contemplated endurance racing and, and uh, you know, you, you would have known what Le Mans was about and things like that, but it but it's it, it opened your eyes and you fell in love with it again, which I think is terrific. Yeah, and that's that's absolutely genuine. And uh, I get goosebumps even just thinking about Le Mans now. And um, it's, um, it's, it's funny because I grew up dreaming of Formula 1 and I'm lucky enough that I've, I've raced at Le Mans and I've raced in Formula 1, but still, for me, nothing compares to standing on that grid at Le Mans um, with the whole grandstands full, I'll never forget my first time with Porsche, seeing the Porsche flags being waved, and that 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 feeling of representing the brand. And I'll just that 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 moment will, will never pass my memory. And and I I didn't have that. I mean, it was incredible to be a Formula One driver too. But that 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 electric feeling and, and that um 
that atmosphere I never experienced in Formula One, believe it or not, which is weird because that's what I grew up dreaming of. And I still love my time in Formula One. I cherished it. You know, the, the Monaco Grand Prix, driving a Formula One car around Monaco or my very first time in a Formula One race at, at Austin. I mean, these these sensations are also absolutely incredible. But just from a pure emotional point of view, I, I, I have this real love affair with the Le Mans 24 hour. Um, but that's not to take anything away from Formula One because that's that's another story altogether, which was was also incredible and so, so many elements of it. Yeah, I reckon you've balanced your answer very well there. Most would res, re, you know would respect that. I, I was under the podium at Le Mans in 2015. Um, you were second that year yep. with with Mark uh, Mark Weber and Timo Bernhard. You would go on to win that race. But I, I want to just touch on a couple of things here because you've raised Porsche. Firstly, that trio, that partnership. I mean. You talk about team in motor racing, great team of drivers and an incredible team of people behind the scenes at Porsche. And that was something really special, wasn't it? Yeah, so becoming a factory Porsche driver, um, definitely those first few years taught me a huge amount as well. So dealing with such a professional company, such a big company, wearing that badge, you know, you have some sense of responsibility, you know, you have a sense of responsibility. Um, Then also such a professional environment, you know, you've got 100 engineers at the racetrack that you're, you know, learning how to deal with that because, you know, you, you have to put your your feedback in the right structure to the right people. There's a, there's a system in place. And that's where Mark Weber definitely helps me a huge amount is just how to manage that, that team element, how to manage myself in such a, such an environment. And, um, but yeah, the, the, the team element in endurance is, is, is special, particularly with the drivers, like you say, with, with Mark and Timo, we, we became best friends. You know, we didn't really know each other very well before that, but when you're sharing a race car week in, week out and, um, every waking moment together uh, on those race weekends and you're you're fighting for that common goal you know win or lose one makes some mistakes you've got the arm around you know you're one guy's having a bad day you're trying to figure out how to help them um or I'm, I'm i'm struggling to explain this well but i guess it's like anyone who's been in any form of um team you know if it's a rugby team or if it's you know there's that team element that motorsport doesn't normally have. So, you know, we're like brothers now, you know, we, we, we had that bond that we, we raced together and, and, and put our complete heart and soul in it for a year. And that's, um, that's something that I, I missed in motorsport before because in Formula One, you're very much an individual. Yes, there's a huge team. Don't like, it is very much a team sport, but it, it does feel more of an individual sport. It's more about an individual driver where, where you've got three of you and you're working together. It just adds this whole other element that I, I very much enjoy. And, and um, you know, I've gone on, I've, I've been in many different trios of, of lineups or even sometimes four drivers at, at Daytona and they're all different in their own way and, and they're all enjoyable. And, and I've made, you know, some incredible friends. Um, because, and I think the other point as well is, is, is you've got this huge respect for each other. Um, you know, getting to work with the likes of Mark and Timo and, and that experience that I can draw on. Like normally if in Formula One, let's say Mark was my teammate, he's not going to share any of that, you know, any of that insight or any of that um, expertise that he's learned over the year. He's not going to help me out with that. But, yeah, exactly. Where, but where you're in this team together and you're, you've, you've almost got the power of, of, of three, you know, and, and it's, um, it really uh, it put me on this very quick trajectory of, of, of learning and experience when you can actually call on those other guys for, 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 the, for that information and um, definitely grew as, as a driver and a person through that, that, that very in a very short time in my time at Porsche yep. when you look back over uh, Porsche you know for 60 odd years or more 
they've had some iconic, some unbelievable race cars. And the car you competed in, 919 or 919, it, it holds, it's now been retired, but it holds an unbelievable space in the, in the history pages. For you, two World Endurance Championships and a Le Mans 24-hour win. I remember 2015 vividly and, and thinking to myself, these things are like real-life scale electrics cars. They're <laughs> unbelievable. Can you give us a sense of what they're like to drive and the, the kind of um, test it must have on your grey matter because there's so much going on with the systems in the cars and how to make the most of it? Yeah, um, they are like little spaceships, as you say. <laughs> very, very complicated, and um, it's but super cool, though. I mean, oh, mate, awesome. I mean, yeah, th- there's a lot to take in while you're driving. So we're managing energy systems. I mean, the, the incredibly complicated car, but also off the track. You know, relaying all that data back to the hundreds of engineers and, and developing that with them, and, and tweaking and fine tuning, getting the most out of it over the course of a weekend was all part of the fun. Um, Can you do that almost? when you've got to make adjustments on the run, can you almost do that by braille for one of a better description? Like you're going down Mulsanne at whatever speed you're doing. Can you do it without needing to look down and things like that? Um, yeah, when you're used to a car. I mean, we're doing, we're doing 36-hour tests sometimes before Le Mans. So you get very uh, used to the, the environment you're in. Um, and, and yeah, you know it like the back of your hand. I mean, there's, there's 100 switches on the thing, but of course, you, you, you know, it's like anyone who's... Um, played a PlayStation or, or tapped on a keyboard. That's a good example. You know, people can, can write on a keyboard without looking at this. It's the same thing in the end. It becomes an extension of, of your body, which is very much the case in a race car. It, it, that, that feeling that you have in a race car and feeling on the edge of the limit, you, you know, you feel it through your body. So the, the whole thing becomes an extension. That's the same for the, for the buttons and all the systems. But yeah, no, the, the car um, definitely go down, goes down in the history, history books and it's cool that my name's written in there as well and as a Lamar winner and together with, with Earl Bamber, another Kiwi who I grew up with was um, another pretty incredible story in my career actually to, to end up standing on the top step of the Lamar podium with another Kiwi driver that I grew up racing go-karts with. I, I grew up spending time on his, fa- his, his, you know, his family's farm as a kid um, and we, we had very different career paths but we ended up back in exactly the same place you know the 20 years later which which was pretty unreal to be honest yeah you summed up before the atmosphere of the event i mean it's what are we talking Two hundred thousand odd people at le mans um immense passion immense history at that at that event and it's grueling just as a spectator to try and stay awake for 24 hours is is tough let alone for you all competing in it um it's you know in the the trio, uh, you know, Monaco Grand Prix, Le Mans 24-hour, Indianapolis 500. It's a very special race to win, Brendan, isn't it? Yeah, no, you're, you're right. And obviously I competed at the, the Monaco Grand Prix as well. Um, and yeah, there's, there's obviously a couple of drivers going after the Triple Crown. There's, yeah. I, think, I think Montoya has won uh, Indy and Monaco and Fernando has now won Le Mans and, um, and Monaco. So I think there's a couple of people in history to win all three. Very, very few. Though. Very it's few. Very yeah, um, yeah. So very lucky to have competed in, in two of them. But um, as, as I said before, Lamar definitely yeah, holds a special place. And yeah, I'm just just thinking about it now. I mean, the virtual one's going to be cool tomorrow, but I, I, I really hope we get back there at the end of the year. That's the end of part one of my chat with Kiwi racer Brendan Hartley. Make sure you head back to the library and check out the second instalment. Part two has a few gems, including his 
where to now moment when Porsche called time on its LMP1 or prototype sports car program, how he landed the drive with Toro Rosso in F1, and he sheds a little more light on a drive in America that could have seen his career take a very different turn.